Hello, I'm Ian Madison, a fellow in the International Development Department and producer of Season 2 of the Refugee Realities podcast series. In this series, students on the Forced Migration and Refugees course at LSE bring us interviews with a range of people on the topic, covering the policies and politics that shape asylum to the experiences of refugees themselves. In this episode, Jasmine Arciero and Oliver Nixon interview Alexa Netti, the trustee and chair of the steering committee of Solidarity. Solidarity is a charity that supports NGOs offering legal aid to forcibly displaced people. And so they begin with a discussion on the importance of legal aid as a key facet of refugee support. They also touch on debates surrounding the role of NGOs in refugee crises, where they fit in within a complex system of assistance, and whether and how it is possible to overcome structural constraints on their coordination and efficiency. Alexa also shares personal stories from her time volunteering in refugee camps to shed light on some of the lived experiences of refugees and the obstacles they are forced to overcome to receive asylum. Jasmine and Oliver are both studying for an MSc in Development Studies at the LSE. Having become engaged in the issues surrounding forced migration and displacement, They were intrigued to delve deeper into the debates surrounding humanitarian assistance and NGOs in support of forcibly displaced people. Jasmine, during her undergraduate degree, volunteered with Solidarity, raising funds that contributed to legal aid grants, as well as awareness raising events and sponsorships. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello everyone, we would like to welcome Alexa to this episode of the Refugee Realities podcast. Alexa is the trustee and chair of the steering committee at Solidarity, a charity led by an international community of over 800 students and young people. Since 2017, Solidarity has sold over 25,000 t-shirts with unique designs representing the experiences of forced displacement. From these sales, the organisation raises funds for NGOs which provide legal aid to refugees and asylum seekers. Outside of Solidarity, Alexa is also extensively involved in promoting refugee rights and receptivity by spending time consulting for NGOs and social impact organisations in the UK and Greece. So, Alexa, perhaps we could begin by talking about what Solidarity does and why you decided to get involved in their work. Sure, and thank you very much for having me on this podcast. It's a real pleasure to be able to speak about some of these things. I thought I could maybe start with an overview of Solidarity's three main pillars. The first is very much about providing support directly to grassroots NGOs who are offering empowering long-term forms of aid to refugees, asylum seekers and other forcibly displaced people. And the way that we do this is by giving grants. So we fundraise and we provide grants to a certain number of NGOs each year to support them in carrying out their work. And the second big pillar of what we do is around awareness raising and education. So we're just trying to bring the conversation surrounding displacement into the student community and the wider international community and make sure that people do actually know about the global refugee crises that are taking place. And then finally, being as we have several hundred students on the team every year, it's really important to me that we retain a sense that solidarity can be a training ground for the next generation of activists, policymakers, humanitarian workers, and actually this be a space to develop your own skills as a change maker. And what I found really interesting about the charity was the legal aid aspect specifically and the focus on doing that rather than giving out resources and monetary aid but not specifically for legal reasons. Obviously in the camp certain resources are really necessary and there is desperate requirements for many people 
but you've this charity has chosen to go specifically down the legal aid route so i was wondering if you could expand more on that decision and the importance of legal aid for asylum seekers i think for me to in order to understand this question i kind of want to go back to what actually it is to seek asylum and we have to remember that refugee status is a legal status much as citizen is And somebody who has been forced to flee their home as a result of violence or persecution has made a journey to a country where they would like to seek asylum, which is the process of applying for refugee status, has to navigate an incredibly complex legal process. Just as it's a legal status, there's a legal and bureaucratic process that goes with that. It's not straightforward, and I'll speak to that in more detail in a minute, but If somebody who has a legitimate fear of persecution does receive refugee status in the country that they've applied, they're able to stay there for several years. They're able to enrol their children in schools, gain access to the right to work, to visit a hospital, to live somewhere. And if somebody who is rejected unjustly cannot go back to their home country because their life is at risk there, and yet they haven't received refugee status, They're likely to either be unjustly deported, which can have very serious consequences, or effectively be forced into destitution. And we often see this people living, I can speak to Greece specifically, sleeping on park benches or in olive groves with no right to any form of cash assistance, no right to work, no right to live anywhere. And so that can be just as deadly as being forced back to a territory that's unsafe. And so when we speak to legal aid, I view it as a long-term solution. That is, for me, the closed peg upon which almost all other rights seem to hang within the asylum system. And so when we speak about empowering and long-term, that's kind of why we have been led to legal aid. So I think, obviously, legal aid appears really important as a kind of more structural barrier for refugees. But then if we're saying that we're trying to address kind of the more foundational level of the inequality and how we can help people... Do you think there's any scope to push work to more addressing, this is kind of a big question, but like the drivers of migration so that in the long term, we don't even need, obviously there's always going to be forced displacement because there's never going to be a peaceful world, but is there a kind of scope to broaden the activities that you can even help the countries of origin in a way that not so many people need to be displaced? I think that's a great question. And if I'm being honest, it's one that keeps me up at night. (laughs) I think where I've landed on this is that At the moment, as you mentioned, people are being forced to flee right now. And the asylum system as it is requires, it has very little state provided aid or support and therefore requires funding to grassroots NGOs that are helping people through the legal system. That's just where we are right now. Whether or not that's the best way to support people who are currently being forced to flee their homes Whether the system even works in 2022 is maybe a separate question. Um, But I very much feel like the injustices are happening now and this is the most effective solution I can see. However, when we speak to drivers of displacement, I think there are two things that we can maybe think about here. One is that I do believe that with education and with outreach and culture change, which is a big part of what we're striving to create at Solidarity, We can create a world which is more welcoming of people who are forced to flee their homes so that we don't have a system where people are constantly having their rights violated, being pushed back up borders or being forced into these bureaucratic systems whereby countries are fighting to try and palm displaced people off onto each other. And then when we speak to drivers themselves, why are people being forced to actually flee their homes? There are three big reasons that are coming to mind for me. 
One that's going to become more and more huge as time goes on is climate-induced migration. And climate migrants don't fall under the Refugee Convention. So I agree that something separate is going to need to be done to uphold the rights of climate migrants. But things that we can also do are do better to combat the climate crisis. And that's a big part of, for example, why we switched our t-shirts to being carbon neutral, vegan and organic. The second is around famine, actually, at the moment. And that does tie into climate. But currently, as we record this podcast in the Horn of Africa, millions of people are food insecure. And I think that's something that the international community needs to come together over. Because what happens when you have resources which are lacking is that we create a higher risk for conflict and persecution and civil war and violence that drives the refugee crises that are more traditionally recognised. And then, of course, the third one, I think we do need to think about our colonialist roots and the international culture that currently exists and why it is that so many countries around the world are not being supported to rebuild peace and somehow conflict is being perpetuated in certain ways and I'm not an expert on anything around conflict and security but if you'd like to address root causes of displacement I'd encourage us to also think about our international policies. Yeah I was going to say when you're talking about the kind of famine side of things I think those two points the neocolonial situation those two kind of things are interrelated because a lot of insecurity and food insecurity is caused by almost a conscious effort of historically colonial states to perpetuate kind of inequality. I suppose also the as a result of the colonial legacy and also the disproportionate impact that Western countries have on climate, it highlights the responsibility that we have for a lot of the refugees that are fleeing their home. So how do you think that speaks to the bureaucratic structures that they have to navigate through? This is why they need legal aid, because these bureaucratic structures are so complex. Do you think there's a root cause of why the legal system is set up in that way? Is it based in inequalities? Is it based in perceptions of refugees, something which they're not? Wow, um, that's a big question. And I think you touched on something really interesting just then, which is that actually you're right. Western governments cannot have it both ways, right? They historically have set up systems of injustice and inequity and yet also do not want to do their part in supporting those that are therefore forced from their homes as an indirect or direct result of those things. When we look to the bureaucratic systems that exist now, I think it would be worth thinking back to when the Refugee Convention was first adopted over 70 years ago, and that was after the Second World War. And that was a refugee crisis, if you want to call it that, that the world hadn't seen, or certainly Europe hadn't seen in in that way. And it's not necessarily something that, in my opinion, makes sense in all cases of displacement in 2022. It's a very individualised system. So the definition of a refugee is somebody, this is according to the UN Refugee Convention, who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted. And then it lists some reasons such as race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, whatever that means. And so becoming a refugee, as in gaining a positive decision in your asylum application, is contingent on you being able to demonstrate this fear of persecution. And that's a very individualised process. So Somebody has to embark on that, they need to put their case together, they have a one-to-one interview, and then that case is reviewed. I'm not sure that that necessarily makes sense at scale. And we're seeing that, for example, with the war in Ukraine, that actually that isn't what's happening um, with visas, because it's not always feasible on a one-to-one basis. Um, And it's maybe interesting to think about why it is that that kind of protocol with visas has been adopted in this case. 
I also don't know that necessarily it's so much the system, the application process itself, as the fact that there is, in Greece especially, I can speak to basically no state-provided legal aid. So you make it a legal system, which is complicated, in another language. Um, Bearing in mind that your asylum interview in Greece can only be in Greek or English, and if you don't speak one of those languages, you may or may not have an appropriate interpreter provided in your interview. Next to no information at all provided, not even around the asylum process, but around where to visit a lawyer, how to buy a bus ticket. These are things that are huge barriers to being able to navigate an asylum process effectively if you've just arrived in a country. But the third strand for me is very much around what's known as pushbacks, which are violent and often collective group expulsions, which are illegal under international law at borders. And we see this between Greece and Turkey for example, where boats are towed back into Turkish waters and vice versa. We also see it within territories. So there's countless reports by Greek border authorities that they are physically towing boats back out to sea and capsizing them. People are often beaten at land borders, for example, in the Western Balkans when they're trying to cross. And so for me, it's as much about a culture change than it is the system. I'm able to reconcile the fact that the system is bureaucratic, individual and complicated if support is put in place and people are allowed to access their right to legal aid. So for me, I think, I know it was a little bit of a roundabout way of answering your question, but I think there's something around an active attempt to create barriers that is the issue here rather than the process itself necessarily. How do you think we can take down those disruptive conceptions? I really do believe, and I understand that this sounds a little bit idealistic, I do believe in united culture change because I think if a critical mass of the people within a country or within Europe or within the international community actually turn around and say, no, there is no way you do this to other human beings at our borders, we will vote differently, we'll make it our political priority. And while, yes, human rights are not supposed to be political, they are. So I do believe that actually education and outreach and just creating that conversation can go a really long way because all the time a subset of the population are misinformed with harmful myths and inaccurate information. It'll be very difficult to put pressure on the structures in power to make changes. But I think the other part of this actually does come around to human rights documentation for pushbacks were strongly, strongly denied by the Greek authorities for years. And actually recently, the European Court of Human Rights have put in place a few interim measures that imply that actually they do believe pushbacks are happening. And there have been lots of investigations which have reached the mainstream press recently. So I think that if we're not there to bear witness and to document and to listen to people with lived experience, it's very difficult to make that change. I was just going to ask you touched on like the importance of human rights, especially with like the pushbacks. But is there more broad role for upholding refugee law and using human rights law to strengthen it and kind of fill holes that it lacks currently? I believe so. And I think this is a really interesting conversation. I think some people are, in my opinion, excessively scared of what I'm going to call human rights creep. Whereas if if we make too many things, fundamental rights or inalienable rights, that suddenly the original human rights, whatever those were, are going to be devalued. And I'm not sure that's really the case, because I think that in this case, it's very holistic. And you can't speak to the right to safety or to live in peace or to access food or medical care without also speaking to the right to reach a territory you feel safe in, the right to make that journey to be able to cross the border. So yes, 
I think there is also a role for just wider education around human rights violations because there are a great many rights violations that occur even being forced to live in a camp like the camp that I went to visit on the Greek island of Lesbos is much improved from what it was several years ago now but it's still lots of people living in huge marquees with wooden partitions and bunk beds like 160 people in one marquee and if that isn't a rights violation I don't know quite where we can go from here so I think yeah let's walk back the conversation a bit I think you're completely right. Let's actually speak to human rights, both within the asylum process and within the whatever context it is that's causing people to be displaced. And I think the other thing that I didn't touch on is that one of, in my opinion, the biggest problems with the asylum system within Europe is that there are certain legal treaties in place which seek to pigeonhole people so that they can only apply for asylum in one country. And this is to apparently to stop asylum shopping where people get asylum in 100 different countries. But What it actually does is give countries an excuse to palm people off. So they start using this very controversial principle called the safe third country principle. And if, for example, in Greece right now, somebody has passed through Turkey on their way to Greece, they're very often sent back to Turkey by Greece. And they have to go through very complicated admissibility procedures to determine whether they're even allowed to apply for asylum in Greece. And to me, that in itself is a rights violation. And if we think about fundamental human rights at that level, we can also start to unpick some of the more discriminatory practices within the asylum system. So I think they do interplay. You spoke just then about when you visited Greece and Lesbos. So I was wondering if you could go into a bit more detail about the lived experiences you witnessed there, the tragedies or the positives that come out with the work of solidarity. Yes, this is always a difficult question for me to answer because... We're really conscious at Solidarity of not playing into like trauma porn type narratives or exploiting somebody's kind of suffering or the worst moments of their life for the purpose of creating some good outcome for the charity. That being said, we know that storytelling is so important for human. Like we are a social species. We do better when we can relate to an individual story. So a lot of the work that I did was more around working within the legal sphere itself. So there was at the NGO that I was mostly volunteering with, there were several teams. So there was the legal team. There was also a psychological and mental health team who worked on both sides. So not only supporting somebody through their asylum application, which could in itself be quite a traumatic process, but they also often are involved in getting the documentation that you need to provide evidence for your asylum claim that you were a victim of torture or that somebody does have PTSD, that evidence is what they're saying has happened to them. So that's just to give you a little context of where I fit into this picture. But there were a few cases that really stuck with me that I could maybe tell you about. And the first was of a man who, I'm going to try and keep the details fairly vague, but had fled extreme persecution. And he did speak fluent English, native English, but he had a very strong accent. And in Greece, as I mentioned, it's either English or Greek for the asylum interview. He opted to do it in English. And the caseworker, which is the person that asks the questions in the interview, was Greek. English was not their first language. And between the accent and the English as a second language issues, something went very wrong. And this man who really did, and there's no such thing as an obvious asylum claim, but who really did tick all the boxes for persecution was rejected. And the lawyers that we support got involved at the appeal stage where you have to challenge the unjust rejection. And that is a nightmare. You cannot do that without a lawyer. Very strict deadlines. 
and they recalled his transcript of what was said in the interview. And to their horror, whole pages were blank, like really blank. And the little bits that had been left in of the bits that the caseworker had managed to catch no longer made any sense because so much of it in the middle was left out that it made it look like he was contradicting himself or missing out huge gaps in the timeline. At one point, the caseworker even wrote in the margin, can't understand him. And rather than postpone the interview or ask for an interpreter to come in or ask him to repeat more times or get somebody else involved, they just opted to reject him. And to me, I think that was maybe the biggest testament to when we talk about barriers um, and we talk about the need for legal aid and just representing people. That really has stayed with me. Other slightly more personal stories were things like the woman that I met who asked me to hold her baby daughter while she went into her interview preparation session because she didn't want her baby sitting on her knee while she told these traumatic stories that she kind of hoped her baby wouldn't remember. And so she was playing with my bracelets and we were just kind of waiting for mum to be done. And then it became apparent that actually mum couldn't do this asylum process because her husband, who had died, there was no evidence that he had died. And that, so she couldn't get legal custody of her kids without another complicated process that was a separate legal issue to be able to even prove that she had the right to claim asylum and to have these kids out of the country. So I continued to stay with her two kids at this point while she had to go to the police station and make all sorts of appointments and she didn't have the money for the bus fare, of course, because in Greece the cash assistance to asylum seekers is not enough. And I was just really struck by the fact that it just doesn't matter how resilient you are or what determination you show actually you just need someone to help you through the process you just need expert guidance like it's wrong to reduce somebody to their experiences or to treat refugees as victims or as babies because honestly I've met some of the most resilient people on earth in those asylum offices but it doesn't matter because you need somebody to help you prove that you your kids are your kids and so those are the two I guess that have clarified things for me that was really touching. It kind of sheds light on things that we often don't hear about and the unfairness of the whole system. Kind of veering away from that slightly, you touched on the NGO and the different kind of facets of what each NGO does, especially in where you are in the camp. And I'm, I know there's loads of different NGOs that work in the camps. Do you think that kind of system with loads of fragmented NGOs doing lots of different things at the same time is conducive to the best kind of outcome? Or... Is there room for improvement? Is that room for improvement even a possibility if we agreed that there was a need for improvement? Where do you sit on that debate? Easiest question you've asked me. Is there room for improvement? Yes. Is it possible? Yes. I have two beliefs around this and they both stem from what we term accountability to the affected population. Are we actually holding ourselves accountable to the people that are affected by the services we're providing? If you receive dodgy information from a lawyer who are you going to complain to? Because I'm sure that the Greek government don't care, because if you get rejected, that's on you. And actually, who it is that the legal aid NGOs are accountable to is often the donors, right? And I don't know about you, but I don't know that the average person buying a t-shirt from Solidarity, for example, even though we really seek to be highly responsible, transparent, we vet our NGOs very carefully, the average person buying a t-shirt is not going to hold us to account in being held to account. Tiara Solidarity's founder speaks much more powerfully on this than me, but I have a few core beliefs around this. 
The first is that I think we want to be creating organisations which are formalised enough that they can have some of these accountability procedures. When things first get set up, and there's such a high turnover at the beginning, right? In 2015, people would literally fly over to Greece with their savings and five friends. They'd run out of funding and they'd leave. So you never have time to set up a formalised process of anything. No time to build expertise, but really no accountability because you're just going to be gone. So I think that we do want to create a situation where we're empowering our grassroots NGOs to stay and use the expertise that they're building, formalise some structures so that they are not only able to respond to feedback from their beneficiaries, but able to respond to feedback from other structures as well. And I think we do really want to be avoiding what we term duplication of efforts. So we don't want a hundred, for example, different NGOs providing legal aid necessarily, because how do you know where to go to? And if they can only take on like five clients each, no one's building the expertise, how are they going to manage that? At the same time, I don't think a monopoly is that helpful because then we really, really have accountability issues. At least if you have a selection of grassroots NGOs and the local community kind of knows that this person is really respectful, really supportive, and this person's got a dodgy reputation, then okay. It's difficult to say that they'll get less business in inverted commas because there is such a scarcity of aid that even if you know, even if a beneficiary knows that one is less good than the other, you might not have a huge amount of choice. But I think that having multiple organisations existing in a context makes us all do better because it's not a like take it or leave it situation in quite the same way. But I think we really need to rethink the way in which aid gets funded because I think what we see often this is very much personal reflections here, I'm not sure it's theoretically anything, but is at the very beginning, these grassroots NGOs often find it a little bit easier to fundraise because when contexts are new, there's press attention, people want to donate, they also have their own local networks, right? Like friends and family are really proud of them. And in those first few years, things are okay. Now in Greece, the refugee crisis is not cool anymore. Major donors have pulled out of places like Greece, the Western Balkans, Calais, in favour of other countries which we see in the press. And I'm not saying that they're not important crises, but we see funding get ripped away. And so I think we just need to really rethink how it is that we're choosing to fund projects, because otherwise we're never going to create a stable group of support services. So yes, sorry, that was a little bit of a ramble. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> I think it shows like, a lot of the time these big donors are more interested not in kind of like an altruistic donation but more of like a a charismatic donation like this is what we're doing so we can kind of gain more moral Mm. superiority which is probably quite problematic and we see this and I I do genuinely believe that 99 times out of 100 people really are trying to do a good thing they might be slightly misguided but I think it would be wrong for me to perpetuate a narrative that everyone's just kind of virtually signaling because I think that Sometimes we can close the door to good conversations if we do that. But I think that what donors often want to do is know exactly what their money's achieved. They put a lot of pressure on NGOs to set up projects. So they want to fund X, Y and Z. New projects have been set up. I think in actual fact, organisations doing good work know best what the good work that they should be doing is. And what they often need is to survive. And so the best thing, in, in Solidarity's opinion, we can do 
is just give organizations money to run the operations they're already running so they're not spending all of their time worrying about funding the things they want to be doing i think the minute donors start being like right well we need to call it the x y and z project so that we can say that we've done a thing it becomes difficult but we find that hard at Solidarity because how can we prove that the thing that the organisation has done wouldn't have happened anyway if we're not doing anything new, right? Yeah, and that's the bit that I think needs revamping. I suppose the impact of that model of funding is also limiting on the cooperation of NGOs because it inherently places them in competition mm. with each other as well. So I wonder, when you talk about these positive changes that can be made, do you see them happening through better engagement of NGOs mm. together? Or does that necessitate a better funding structure? I, is this change going to come from better donors or mm. better NGOs? I wish I had the answer to that. I guess it's... I'm actually just reflecting as you say this because I'm quite guilty of often saying things like, well, if the sector just cooperated more... Why is no one taking control of coordinating? And actually, why they're not is very often because they're being pitted against each other time and time again. And even when I just spoke to, and I do believe that it's important that people have choices and that we have some differentiation, but even in that, it becomes difficult. And I think a lot of the organisations at Solidarity Funds are amazing at what we call capacity bridging. So if they're legal actors, they're giving training to the medical actors in case anyone asks them a question that might involve asylum application. They're also giving training on their area of expertise, be that sexuality-based asylum claims or a specific country of origin. Or And actually, there's a lot of knowledge sharing and referral mechanisms. But we also see lots of really informal networks become really quite formalised as well. And there are some amazing... For example, the Border Violence Monitoring Network is a cohort of lots of different organisations that work together to document things. And these things are fantastic, but it, they often get disregarded when it comes to funding, because again, funding coordination is not that glamorous, right? So I think that some of it might need to come from the donors, but my concern with wholeheartedly saying on this podcast for all to hear that that's what I've got to do is that I think it would also be wrong to force organisations to that, that funding was contingent on them uniting to do a project because again they know better and we don't and maybe that's not the right thing. Um, I think just to finish then we would like to ask where Solidarity sees itself going, what kind of things does Solidarity engage with that are really important, need to be continued and kind of hopes for the future? <laughs> my favourite subject. So there are three, everything seems to be in three today, but three big things that I believe. We're working really hard to make some big shifts and I think have done over the time that I've been involved in the leadership team. The first is actually to break away from solely speaking about refugees and asylum seekers. It is the place where legal aid fits in most easily. We know we have impact within the asylum system but we don't want to perpetuate a narrative that we don't even believe, which is that there are good and bad migrants. So we try to be really inclusive in our language and also in the types of aid we provide, that we're supporting asylum seekers and refugees, yes, but also other people who are forced to migrate in vulnerable situations that don't fit under this umbrella, because actually they often receive even less protections. And this might be climate migrants, but it might also be Victims of trafficking might be people who were rejected for asylum, so they're never going to be recognised as refugees. So that's one thing that my vision is actually that we really bring that into the conversation even more so. We've taken some steps towards that this year, actually, and we fund 
legal aid in the way that we always have done in the Greek context, but we're also funding work with a more international focus, specifically in the Western Balkans. And actually what's interesting to me about this context is that the majority of people that we're able to support who are forcibly displaced in Bosnia and Serbia are people on the move. It's not really possible to apply for asylum in Bosnia or Serbia. The systems are very, very slow and exclusive. And also they're not places that people who've migrated from conflict-affected countries are necessarily going to be able to rebuild their lives in. So legally it doesn't work in that context, in the in the way that we normally would. And that's why we, in those cases often do more around information provision and human rights documentation and advocacy. So I think it is important for us to also bang the drum about legal aid because it's great, but make sure that we're inclusive in acknowledging that we need to provide the aid that's most empowering and going to make the biggest difference in the context that we're in and not try and shoehorn one certain type of aid in. I think we also want to take a global focus. I think we've made some strides in this within our outreach and education, but I'd like to see that continuing because, again, small NGO, we can't fund every country, but that doesn't mean that we can't be talking about global context and understanding the relationships that exist there. And I think the third for me would be that we continue to exist as a, a really serious actor in the sector. We're one of the very few organisations that's doing grant funding in this way. And I would like to see us being able to provide more funding year on year, being able to galvanise a community of supporters that really are making really meaningful change year on year. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode in Season 2 of the Refugee Realities podcast series, hosted by the Department of International Development at the LSE and made possible by the Eden Catalyst Fund. We have more episodes on the way, so please do stay tuned.